Hey there. A couple years ago, I got in touch with a guy who'd been posting about this show on Twitter. Hi. Yeah, my name's Luke Messick. I am a instructor of emergency medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and Harvard Medical School. And he's a PhD historian. And he told me he was writing a history of something we cover a lot on this show, medical debt. It's a problem I couldn't avoid and therefore couldn't avoid writing about. And now that book is out. It's called Your Money or Your Life. And it tells the story of how the collection of medical debt in the U.S. became so aggressive and the real impact it has on patients and especially important for us, a different way to do things. This is An Arm and a Leg, a show about why healthcare costs so freaking much and what we can maybe do about it. I'm Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter and I like a challenge. So our job on this show is to take one of the most raging, terrifying, depressing parts of American life and bring you something entertaining, empowering, and useful. Luke Messick says his journey begins with this guy. It's not intellectually shallow to have hope. That's a profound thing. That is Paul Farmer. And yes, you may have heard me mention him recently, like when we talked about the writer John Green. Paul Farmer was a doctor who founded an amazing global health organization called Partners in Health. He's the subject of a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains, which focuses a lot on his work in Haiti and which I'm going to say again here, when we start a book club on this show, that is my vote for our first read. Anyway, Luke started watching Paul Farmer's videos as a kid and ended up as his student. I knew I wanted to be in, in medicine. I knew I wanted to be a doctor. And when I first got into Harvard as a 17-year-old kid, I think YouTube was just starting at that point. I'm going to date myself. And I saw some of his lectures. And this was right around the time when Mountains Beyond Mountains came out. And I started to learn more about his work. My father was born in Haiti, and I've always had a special affinity for the country. And so I heard about him. I really lucked out in that that one year he was teaching a freshman seminar for 12 kids. And so we ended up taking this class with him as freshmen and then kind of clung for dear life to work with the organization after that because we were hooked. Yeah, I mean, what an incredible opportunity. And I only know him right through his kind of public persona and mostly through reading that book, which is now like 20 years old, I think. Um, but, you know, it seems like such an incredibly inspiring person, somebody who doesn't kind of accept half measures. Yeah. He insisted on a few things. And one of them was that the poor patients shouldn't get care any less decent than the care that anyone else would expect, that the care that we deliver at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where he also worked, should be the standard of care that should be delivered everywhere, including rural Haiti, including rural Rwanda. You know, he would call that an aspirational goal sometimes, but it's one that he was extremely serious about and devoted this guy did not stop working. You couldn't keep up with him. But he also made space for students, especially younger students, people who weren't even in their medical training yet. And he made so much time for me, so much time for us. He'd always respond to our emails, our text messages. Did you like apply to MD, PhD programs like at the same time that like you're like finishing undergrad and you're like, OK, here's the plan for the next 15 years? Or did, did yeah. things evolve? Like how, how did that work? Yeah, essentially. I mean, I'm somewhat loath to give up a, a little secret, which is that the MD-PhD programs in the United States are paid for by the federal government. At least that still remains the case. And so if you want to get a medical degree in the United States, most of the time you're going to come out, unless you're independently wealthy, with six figures in debt. And I'm not talking low six figures. If you want to get an MD-PhD in the United States, that is still funded by the federal government. So you're going to graduate 
with $0 in debt from medical school or graduate school, and you'll get a stipend on top of that. So it is a long road, but it is one that doesn't leave you tremendously in the hole when you come out feeling like you can't do anything but try to pay back that debt. That is really, really wild. It's really interesting that it's, I mean, there's something very poetic about you entering this program that allows you to uh, emerge from it without debt and then using that resource to build an understanding of and campaign against debt. So it's 2019, it's fall of 2019, and this is your story. This is how you arrived here. You are yourself basically debt-free, and you've been following a path. And you note that you had been reading about medical debt lawsuits. Yeah, I'd seen it in ProPublica, Kaiser Family Foundation, and in various newspapers across the country. And yeah, I had friends in training at Johns Hopkins Hospitals in Baltimore, and I saw them post pictures of their protests against their own hospital's practice of suing patients, oftentimes their own low-paid employees for medical debts they couldn't afford to pay. Their work was really an inspiration to me to find out if this kind of thing was going on elsewhere. I thought it didn't. I thought it was a very anomalous practice. I didn't think I'd find too much uh, in the way of it happening in my neck of the woods, but I was I was wrong about that. So in the book, you tell the story that you went to the courthouse in Providence, Rhode Island, where you were working as a medical resident to look up medical debt lawsuits. And you're still imagining this as like, well, this is some kind of outlier thing. I'm not going to find it. But you're like, you're just a little curious. Being a historian is a very solitary and quiet existence. And that is something that you cannot say of the emergency department, neither solitary nor quiet ever. And so I was, I had a day off. I wanted to relive my days in the archive and I wanted to answer this question. And I went to the courthouse and I asked to be let into the court records. And so basically they let you into this back room. Looks like an office from office space, like the movie. Uh, (laughs) A lot of UV light and white walls and a very old computer that looks like it came out of the late 1990s, early 2000s. And you pull up the database, also a very clunky-looking old database, and you can type in your hospital or type in your business or type in an individual and see if they've ever been involved in the court system. And so I did that. I looked up my hospital system, other hospital systems in the state, and some of the lawsuits were what you'd expect like medical malpractice suits and run-of-the-mill employment disputes. But Luke also saw lawsuits against the hospital's patients. A lot of lawsuits. And when they were filed, oftentimes they would get a response from the defendant. And these responses would show me that some of the defendants were single mothers. Some of the defendants were living on Social Security disability. Some of the defendants were recent immigrants who had trouble responding in English and so wrote back in in their native languages, pleading for leniency. And when they asked for such, they would get some in the form of usually a payment plan. Maybe they would be asked to pay some amount every month for the next five years, six years, seven years to cover the cost of a single visit. And if they signed up for those payment plans, then they would be told that if they missed any payments, that they would be charged double-digit interest rates. And if they didn't respond, as many didn't, then they would lose the case by default and oftentimes have their wages garnished, have 25% of their wages 
taken from them every month. And so these were really punitive measures being taken against really vulnerable patients. The vast majority of lawsuits in the state were filed by the hospitals in which I worked. And this was really disturbing to me. I'd always comforted my patients who worried about the cost of their care when they came in and said, oh boy, am I going to be able to afford this? You know, should I have come in at all? And I always tried to comfort them and say, oh, don't worry about it. Even if you're uninsured, we have financial assistance. We don't go after people. And I was wrong. I was dead wrong about that. And that made me feel pretty awful. In the book, you say you felt shame. Yeah, it was a mixture of anger and surprise and shame. Because I always knew that our healthcare system was full of injustice. That so many people can't afford insurance, even those who do aren't always able to afford their care. That the distribution of resources runs along steep gradients of inequality. But I didn't realize that I was such a direct participant in that injustice, that the care I was delivering to patients was resulting in them showing up in court or having their wages garnished or signing up for a payment plan that they would be paying for the better part of a decade. So that was really the source of my shame. And what did you do? Like, I know eventually you took lots of actions, but like, what did you do immediately? Yeah, I talked to my friends. I talked to some mentors. I talked to my wife, who was also in medicine, but was working elsewhere. And all of us shared the same sense of shock and anger and shame because none of us wanted to be doing that to our patients. We all kind of shared the same sense of shock, but I didn't know what to do at first. I didn't know where to turn. At first you tried Twitter, right? Or Facebook or something? I put out a couple of, you know, impotently angry tweets about it and said, someone's got to do something about this. This shouldn't exist. And didn't get much of a response. You know, a few friends of mine said, right on. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't making much of a dent. So he wrote an op-ed, submitted it everywhere he could think of. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, even his hometown paper, Providence Journal. No one was interested. No bites. And then there was a small uh, lefty blog run by this guy, Steve Alquist, a real muckraking crusader here in Providence. And I sent it to him and he said, this is really interesting. Absolutely, I'll run it. I didn't know if it would make any difference whether this blog post on Uprise Rhode Island uh, you know, would, would cause any waves. But sure enough, the morning it went up, I got a call from my superiors of the hospital saying they definitely wanted to meet. So it had, it had something <laughs> of its desired effect, although I won't recommend the approach to everybody because it did imperil my job. Because that first meeting was not set up as a friendly chat. The message also said he could face public correction or worse. Or worse, dot, dot, dot. dot, dot. dot. So I wondered what that or worse could be. Because you met with a top administrator who was like, 
you're just wrong, buddy. We don't do that. That never happens. I would know. Yeah, they did tell me that they didn't sue patients, that I was wrong. And to be honest, it raised a couple other questions in my mind saying, is this guy just lying to me or does he literally not know? And I would come to learn that almost nobody seems to know what their hospital is doing. And so when I was able to prove to the folks who I was meeting with that you were indeed suing patients. In fact, some of these lawsuits were filed in the last few weeks. They quickly changed course. They severed their relationship with the debt collector who was filing the lawsuits on their behalf and dismissed the remainder of the cases. So that was a sanguine outcome from that one thing, but it did make me realize a few things. One was that I'd really only started to understand what on earth was going on and how so many patients were being sued and how it was being done in a way that most of us who were involved in delivering care and even a lot of the people who were involved in running the hospital didn't seem to know that this was happening. So Luke Messick, the doctor, now knew that hospitals, including his, were suing patients to collect debt. Luke Messick, the historian, wanted to figure out when this practice started and why. That's after this. This episode of An Arm and a Leg is produced in partnership with KFF Health News. That's a nonprofit newsroom covering healthcare in America. Their work is terrific, wins all kinds of awards every year. I am so proud to work with them. Luke writes Medical debts have long spurred people to desperate acts theft, suicide, plane hijacking, and yes, the story of the hijacking is in the book. He also writes, quote, the modern era of pay up or else health financing and aggressive debt collection began in earnest during the last two decades of the 20th century as threats to their own survival made hospitals less financially forgiving toward their patients, unquote. He writes about the 80s, how changes to Medicare and Medicaid left hospitals strapped for cash and how they tried to make up the difference by charging higher prices to private insurers, which meant higher prices for the uninsured too. And how in the 90s, private insurers started pushing back on how much they'd pay and what they'd pay for. And that hit hospitals in the pocketbook hard. Really, the question is, when the cost pressures start, who's going to make up the difference? And for a lot of places, it was patients. It was patients paying in the form of higher deductibles, higher co-pays, or for the uninsured, more aggressive debt collection measures. And so a lot of hospitals would leave debts on the books for years, even decades, until this time when they started saying, we're done waiting for our money. Literally, <laughs> we're done waiting for our money was the line. And so they turned to third-party debt collectors to whom they would either assign debts or sell debts. And those debt collectors really introduced a whole new series of tactics that involved the court system, that involved wage garnishment and reporting debt to credit bureaus and placing liens on property and foreclosing on homes and sometimes even seeking the arrest of patients who didn't show up to hearings. So this was a really brave new world of medical debt collection that we continue to live with today. So here's what I don't really get. Um, 
<laughs> this comes up whenever you see stories about hospitals to patients over debts. It's like how little money this actually generates for hospitals. And this is evident from your accounts of the very first sales of debts that hospitals are selling, you know, these very large collections of debts for tiny, tiny amounts. And like, so what's the point? That is the persisting mystery of all of this. I think I have a few reasons why this might have happened. One is that it is a revenue garnering tactic, even as small as it is. It puts you a little more in the black or a little less in the red. And if you are a hospital financial administrator who's charged with making sure that you remain as much in the black as possible or less in the red, then you're going to take every tool in your toolkit until someone tells you not to. And without doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals really being involved in the process or aware that the process is going on, there's really nothing to stop them. And the only people who you're hearing from are debt collectors themselves. They are selling their wares at your door. They are at all your conferences. They are promising you that they will help your situation. And so why not? I mean, your billing and collections office doesn't want to deal with these bills. Folks who work in hospital billing offices, they're used to dealing with insurers. They don't mind that at all, right? This trench warfare trying to get insurers to pay up and dealing with all of their rigmarole in the reimbursement process is something in which they are well-trained. But very few people want to deal with what are called self-pay patients. They don't want to be on the phone with poor folks trying to get them to pay up. And so you're taking a headache off their hands by handing it to a third-party debt collector who's telling you that they'll bet they're better at it anyway. So I think a lot of that has to do with kind of just the, the headache saved and the promised resources, however small they are, from turning to this tactic. It's just it's too easy to do at this point. Luke's book profiles some of the early trailblazers in this headache-saving business. So a guy named Michael Barrist founded NCO Financial Systems. That's a company that bought so much medical debt, they became known as the Walmart of debt collection. And a salesman for the company named Charles Piola was so good at selling the company's services to doctor's offices and hospitals that Inc. Magazine dubbed him the king of cold calls. Luke writes that the company's tactics included contacting patients up to 50 times in four or five months and finding them at their workplaces. These were not folks whose training started with a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. That was not their context. Their reference points are really other forms of consumer debt. When people don't pay for their cars, their car is getting pounded. When people don't pay their credit card bills, they get double-digit interest rates too. When people don't pay for their homes, those homes get foreclosed. So when people don't pay their medical bills, then use the tools at your disposal, including the legal system. There was also some concern that if hospitals were too lenient on patients, that they might be running afoul of some Medicare rules about kickbacks and this is an interesting concern, one that I saw raised in some legal papers, but it's one that, at least for the last 20 years, 
the Department of Health and Human Services has tried to allay. And some hospitals have forsworn the practice. There are hundreds of hospitals out there who just do not sue patients, will not sue patients, and will tell you straight out, we don't do it, we won't do it. And they're not getting sued by the federal government for kickbacks, right? So it's not necessary. You don't have to do it. And yet hospitals still do. So at the end of the book, you talk about like, well, how do we reform the system? And that this issue of these kind of aggressive debt collection practices kind of rouse the conscience of most everyone. When individual institutions get the spotlight shown on, they generally stop doing it. But it's not enough. Like, it still leaves people with so so many people with so much debt with so many bills they can't pay. Yeah. I have a lot of sympathy for people who feel like this problem is just too big. Or that they have other things that they need to do. For patients, often the patients who face these problems, you know, they're often dealing with their own illnesses and their own debts and their own problems, and to ask them to solve the problem themselves doesn't seem a reasonable solution. But then I also have sympathy for the people who work in hospitals, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory technicians, the janitors, the administrators even, who feel like their work is harder than ever and that they have enough trouble trying to make sure their patients get decent care and that they're able to keep their own heads above water while doing it and not burn out. And to ask them to really look upon a really ugly feature of the healthcare system and not only imbibe it and make sense of it, but do something about it. That's asking a lot. And I'm really cognizant of the fact that we're already asking so much of healthcare workers around the country. But I do think it's something we need to take on. And so the best efforts are really the collective ones. And so I would say any possibility of joining up with other like-minded folks who are already doing this work is going to be so much more fun and so much more effective. Find your people. Amen. (laughs) Yeah. And look around and see what your own place is doing, your own hospital system, because I regret to inform you that some of them won't be what you hoped. But they are susceptible to pressure. They are capable of shame. And so... There is a lot you can do close to home to make sure that your own institution is doing right by patients. Find out if your institution is suing patients. Look up your own hospital's financial assistance policy and see what sort of extraordinary collection actions they will take against patients. See how much money patients have or not have to qualify for free and discounted care and ask yourself, is that as much as the hospital system could be doing given their resources? So there's a lot you can do. Some of it involves grand systemic change, and some of it involves just making sure that where you go to work every day, where you're training, where you're studying, is a place that you can believe in. Luke Messick's book is Your Money or Your Life, Debt Collection in American Medicine. It is out now from Oxford University Press. And speaking of right now, Newsmatch is in effect. This is where we raise the biggest piece of our budget for next year with your help. The Newsmatch program matches every dollar you give us. The place to go is armandalegshow.com slash support. That's armandalegshow.com slash support. Next time on an arm and a leg, for a lot of us, November is open enrollment for next year's health insurance. Last year around this time, Ellen Hahn was absolutely scrambling super creatively. When I was a kid, I dreamed about being an actor. I didn't dream about having health insurance. I just kind of thought I would have it. 
She decided to make a short film and cast herself in it. And she raised the money by crowdsourcing online. The title, Ellen Needs Insurance, of course. Now the movie's out. We'll hear all about it. And, of course, this year she needs insurance all over again. Plus, her union's been on strike since May. Whoa. We'll find out what she's got planned. That's in two weeks. Meanwhile, I am saying, please do take a minute to pitch in and help us make this show Every dollar gets matched. The place to do that is armandalegshow.com slash support. That's armandalegshow.com slash support. Thank you so much. Catch you in a couple weeks with Ellen Needs Insurance. Till then, take care of yourself. This episode of An Arm and a Leg was produced by Emily Pisacreta and me, Dan Weissman, and edited by Ellen Weiss. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Adam Raimunda is our audio wizard. Our music is by Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. Gabrielle Healy is our managing editor for audience. She edits the First Aid Kit newsletter. B. Bosco is our consulting director of operations. Sarah Balama is our operations manager. And Arm and a Leg is produced in partnership with KFF Health News. That's a national newsroom producing in-depth journalism about healthcare in America and a core program at KFF, an independent source of health policy research polling, and journalism. Zach Dyer is senior audio producer at KFF Health News. He's editorial liaison to this show. And thanks to the Institute for Nonprofit News for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about INN at inn.org. Finally, thanks to everybody who supports this show financially. This is the best moment to give. Every dollar gets matched right now. The place for that is armandalegshow.com slash support. Thank you for pitching. And if you can, thanks for listening.